This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Paradox. A seemingly self-contradictory statement that when investigated may prove to be true. Examples. Save money by spending it. If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. I'm a compulsive liar. When I am weak, then I am strong. And this is the paradox that Paul states at the end of verse 10, and it's the paradox that we will examine this morning. When I am weak, then I am strong. A seemingly self-contradictory statement that when investigated may prove to be true. My hope is that after we investigate this, you will see that it is proven to be true. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now before we begin, we need to set the context a little bit. Chapter 12 starts off by saying, I must go on boasting. And taken out of context, we might think, what are you talking about, Paul? Why do you need to go on boasting? Like, that doesn't seem good. That seems kind of odd that you would feel the need to go on boasting. And that would be odd. In fact, Paul doesn't want to boast. What was going on at the, in the church of Corinth is that there were a lot of false teachers that were coming in. And at this point, Paul had not seen this congregation for about a year and a half now. And these false teachers have come in seeking to take advantage of the church in light of Paul's absence. And so in order for, to, to gain their own authority, these false teachers set out a campaign against the apostle Paul, seeking to bring him down in order to bring themselves up. And so they spread lies about him and they slander him. And they question his motives. They question his authority. They question his character. And Paul now needs to defend himself so that this church does not fall to these false teachers. These false teachers were boasting in themselves and they were tearing Paul down. And Paul says he too will boast, although he finds it foolish. He doesn't want to boast, but he does so in order that they would listen. The difference, however, is that his boasting is not in what most would boast about. His boasting is in his weakness. And in chapter 11, he presents a long list of sufferings and persecutions that he's experienced. And most would think, why are you boasting about that? Like, that's a weird thing to boast about. That's, that's kind of shameful. It's kind of embarrassing. Like, you're, you're supposed to be the great Paul. This doesn't sound very great. If anything, it sounds like maybe God's not very happy with you. And then here in chapter 12, he shares a very personal weakness in his life, this thorn in the flesh. In order for this thorn in the flesh to even make sense, he must share an experience in a vision which he had 14 years ago, which is what we read in verses one through six. And even as he shares this, he, he's so hesitant to mention that it's him. In fact, he speaks in the third person. It's like when people say, hey, I have this question, but it's, it's for a friend. It's for a friend. It's not for me. And we all know who it's for. 
Paul here shares with them this vision that he had. And he doesn't share many details, and we're really not going to spend time this morning looking at the specifics of this vision. What we do know is that he was brought up into the third heaven, that he was brought up into paradise. And some scholars believe that this was two different experiences. However, I think most would agree that it was one experience talking about the same thing. And most likely, the the third heaven and paradise referring to the three-class system of the heavens. The first being the sky, the, the, the atmosphere, the clouds where the birds are. The second being the stars and space. And the third heaven being the dwelling place of God. And I believe that is here in the vision which Paul was caught up to, as it says in verse two. But really what struck him are the things in which he heard, verse four, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's what he heard. Now what exactly he heard, we don't know. But we know that it must have been extraordinary. And it's because of this experience, in which he just described, that brings us to verse seven, in which he talks about his weakness in which why he was given this thorn in the flesh. And it's really his weakness that he wants to discuss. Not this vision, but the weakness. It's his weakness he wants to boast in. Chapter 11, verse 30 says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Chapter 12, verse five, as we read earlier, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 7 through 10. And examining the paradox that Paul states, for when I am weak, then I am strong, my hope is that it will be proven that this is not a self-contradictory statement, but rather it is a seemingly self-contradictory statement. And the reason it is not self-contradictory is because of the involvement of God in our weakness. We are not left alone in our weakness, but rather we see God's hand through it all. How so? We see God's sovereignty in our weakness. We see God's gifts in our weakness. And we see God's glory in our weakness. And therefore, we can confidently say, when I am weak, then I am strong. And so first, we see God's sovereignty in our weakness, verses 7 through 8. And we see that God allowed this trial in Paul's life. What trial? The main trial that Paul's focusing on here, which becomes a weakness for him, is this thorn in the flesh. And when Paul says this thorn in the flesh... Don't think of it like a little thorn off a rose bush. We're like, ah, like that, that kind of hurt. That was a little thorn. I didn't like that. Now, the word for thorn here is that of a steak. Not a juicy steak, okay? A steak, like a big uh, sharpened wooden spear. It's meant to be painful. It's not just a nuisance, but it is painful. And it's not a thorn in the flesh, but it's a thorn for the flesh is actually how the text was written. So it really should be read, a stake was given to me for the flesh. Now this raises a couple questions. First, what was this thorn? And second, where did this thorn come from? Let's address the first question. What exactly was this thorn in the flesh? 
And naturally, many people debate this and they go rounds and rounds. It was this, it was this. Oh, what is it? Was it spiritual? Was it physical? Was it a sickness? Was it an ailment? Some kind of disability? What was it? And much debate has gone on. And none, in my opinion, have a strong case for their conclusion. All fall short somewhere because it doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us what this thorn was. And honestly, I don't think it matters what the thorn was. That's okay. We can be confident that if it had been spiritually profitable for us to know, then God would have revealed it to us in his word. What we do know is that it was a deep trial for Paul. What we do know is that it was a reoccurring trial for Paul. But the specific of what the thorn was evidently is not necessary for us to know. Well, the question still remains, where did this thorn come from? From Satan? From God? Somehow both? Verse 7 says that this thorn was a messenger of Satan to harass him. Who was the messenger of Satan? Was it the false teachers? Was it a demon? Was it Satan himself? Who was it? And while it doesn't mention specifically who it was, I do think that it's clear that there was some kind of a demonic force in attack against Paul here. That the enemy was involved, either directly or indirectly, such as through the false teachers. That this messenger of Satan was sent to torment Paul. That this messenger of Satan was sent to harass him. However, I do not think that is the complete picture. I believe God is involved. I believe God does have his hand in this situation. God has bigger plans than what we see on the surface. This was not outside of God's control, but rather it was part of his divine purpose and plan. God allowed this trial. God allowed this thorn into Paul's life. God had a sharpened stake penetrate through the life of Paul for his own divine purpose. He allowed this to happen according to his perfect plan. And we're going to develop this throughout the next couple of verses. We're going to see that God allowed this for the good and the growth of Paul and ultimately for the glory of God. I believe the enemy was involved here while at the same time being within the sovereign will of God. Now, I don't want us to think that every trial and every difficulty is a direct attack from Satan. But we should understand that every trial and every difficulty is part of God's sovereign and perfect plan. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. I think there's a great parallel here between this and what we see in Job chapters 1 and 2. If you remember the story in Job chapters 1 and 2, we see Satan directly attacking Job. However, it is all within the parameters that God has set. And it ultimately was used for the betterment of Job, right? Throughout the process, we see Job worship God. As he says, God gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We see Job become humbled. We see Job submit to the holiness of God. We see Job grow throughout the process. This was never Satan's intent. He wasn't intending for Job to worship God and to grow throughout the process. But it was God's. We also see similarities in the life of Joseph. Really, a roller coaster of a life full of ups and downs. And it starts with Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers. And without getting into all the details of the various trials he faced, we know, we see at the end 
of it all, he is able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. They meant evil against their brother. Their purpose was with evil intent, and Joseph suffered because of it. However, God was sovereign through it all. God had bigger plans. God's hand was over Joseph's situation the entire time. And of course, we must look at Romans 8, 28, a very familiar passage that says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I actually think the NIV has it better, which reads, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God works for the good. Things don't work themselves out for good, but God is the one who works all things for the good of those who love him. All things, even our greatest trials and difficulties and weaknesses. Now, what is that good? What is the good that he works out for us? That, that all pain and suffering disappears? That we will always get what we ask for? That he somehow balances the scales? That if, if, if we've had this amount of suffering, then now we have, we have this amount of good? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is our good, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. God uses trials in our lives for all kinds of reasons, to test our faith, to strengthen our faith, to give us a hope and a longing for what is to come, to reveal our own idols, to allow us to, to sympathize and help others in need, to grow us in the various ways in which we need to be grown, but ultimately that we would become more like Christ, and that we would conform to the image of his son. That is a priority for God. Is that a priority for you? Is that your priority? he'd be conformed to the image of his son. Sometimes our comfort is our priority. Sometimes our health is our priority. Sometimes our goals being accomplished is our priority. Sometimes the ease of life is our priority. Is that God's priority for your life? Sometimes God will bless us with these things and praise God and we ought to be thankful for that. But our priority ought to be to conform to the image of Christ to the praise and the glory of God. Beloved, in your weakness and in your troubles, know that God has a purpose for it all. That it is for your good. It is not in vain. God is sovereign and he loves you, and he cares for you, and he is on his throne. And while the pain is real, and while the pain is deep, God has a purpose for it all. Why would God allow such a deep anguish into Paul's life? Why would he allow a messenger of Satan to torment him? One reason was to keep him humble. God purposed this trial in Paul's life to keep him humble. Let's look again at verse seven. 
he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I think there's another clue on how we know that God's sovereign hand was upon this. Satan is not in the business of teaching us humility. If anything, he wants us to be prideful, right? He doesn't want us to be humble. But God uses the attacks and the schemes of the enemy for the purpose of his people and for his glory. Isn't that incredible? Satan tries to do all this stuff. God doesn't flinch. God is in control. God uses this thorn to humble Paul, to keep him from becoming conceited. He had witnessed, he had experienced this great vision which could have made him very proud, but instead God uses this thorn to keep him humble. What a gift from God. What a gift. See, instead of viewing this thorn as a curse, Paul can view it as a blessing, knowing with confidence that God has a purpose behind it. And one of those purposes is to keep him from becoming conceited. God desires for us to be humble too. Scripture says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is commanded in many places that we are to love one another in humility, that we are to have a mindset of humility. And trials tend to do this, do they not? Do not our weaknesses tend to humble us? Do they not show us how small we are and how great God is? Do not trials and weaknesses, even the playing ground, in times in which you may feel greater than others? Thanks be to God that he allows weaknesses and trials into our lives to keep us humble. When trials come and we feel we are without strength, it humbles us. And there are times in which we need to be humbled. And this is part of God conforming us into the image of his son, that we would have humility. And not only was this used to keep Paul humble, but it was used to keep him in prayer. God purposed this trial in Paul's life to keep him on his knees in prayer. Let's look at verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul pleads with the Lord, take this from me. God, remove this from my life, please. I'm pleading with you. Take this from me. What a proper response. What a proper response that he would plead with the Lord. Understanding the sovereignty of God in our trials does not mean that we just become emotionless robots. Cry out to the Lord in your pain. It's okay to ask God to remove your trial from your life. Paul asked repeatedly. He asked three times. As it says in Philippians 4, 6, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's okay to ask and desire that God would remove the hardship from your life. But let us be wise and look at the, our Lord and Savior as he prayed to the Father hours before his greatest trial and suffering. Listen to 
our Savior's prayer is documented in Luke 22, 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He makes his request known, but he continues. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let that be our prayer that we make our requests known to God, but that we desire his will over our will, always. Going to the Lord in prayer is the proper response to our weakness. Notice, that is Paul's response. He, he, he doesn't go on some demon hunt. He, he, he doesn't call out to Satan to stop sending this messenger. No, he goes to the one who has the authority. He goes to the one who is in control. He goes to God and asks that he would end this. That ought to be our response. Prayer. And our weakness and our trials, they typically do drive us to prayer. Do they not? It's often the times in which our prayer life goes up. And in a way, that, that is a wonderful thing. It is a blessing. But be careful of not doing the opposite. Do not let your, your trials push you away from God. Do not let your trials cause you to distance yourself from God. And if, if you are in the Lord, positionally, you can never be separated from him. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the temptation to think wrongly about God. The temptation to begin doubting God's goodness and his power. The temptation to see only what is in front of you and, and believe that you know what is best instead of trusting the sovereign, almighty God. How do you respond to the trials and the weakness in your life? How do you respond? Allow them to draw you to your knees and approach his throne of grace. Cry out to your loving father and make your request known to him like he pleaded with the Lord. Paul made his request known to God. And God answers Paul's prayer. And he said no. He said no. This was not the answer that Paul desired. But it was the answer that Paul needed. God's answer was not that he would remove this thorn from Paul's life. He says no, I'm not. In fact, I, you are going to continue to have this thorn in your life. But I will give you the grace and the power to endure, to continue with it. That was his answer. Which brings us to our next point, God's gift in our weakness. God's gifts in our weakness. The first is the gift of God's grace. Look at verse nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. We see the gift of God's grace, that God's grace is sufficient. That God would give Paul the grace that he needed to endure this trial. God's grace was sufficient. It's sufficient. It is enough. It is what he needs. God would not just leave the thorn in Paul's life and say, okay, Paul, have fun with that. He says, no, you're going to continue to have this thorn, but I'm not leaving you empty-handed. My grace is sufficient. See, instead, he would give him the grace that he needs to endure, to continue with the thorn. And he does so for you and me, always. 
God and his grace will give us what we need to endure in our weakness. And there may be times in which God removes the thorn from our lives, yes. And there may be times when God says no, my grace is sufficient. Do you believe that God's grace is sufficient? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's grace is enough? That God's grace is all that you need? God's grace is sufficient. Always. Even in your greatest trials. Even when, you, when you're faced with questions such as, why did I lose my job? Why do I have cancer? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why does it seem like nobody likes me? Why is my life not going the way that I thought? Even in those moments, God's grace is sufficient. Even in your greatest sins, his grace is sufficient. Even when you feel trapped by your sin and you feel there is no victory, there is no improvement, what can I do with this struggle? I, I, I feel so weak, I, I, I can't say no. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is greater than your sin. Christ has conquered all sin. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Beloved, you are no longer enslaved to sin, but you are free in Christ. His grace is sufficient in our weakness and in our pain, God's grace is sufficient, always. We need nothing more than his grace. It is sufficient. Do you believe that? Not only does God give us his grace, but he gives us his power. So next we see the gift of God's power, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Now notice he doesn't say that weakness is power as if they're the same thing, as if there's, there's no difference between weakness and power. No, what he says is that in our weakness, we see Christ's power dwell in us, come upon us, made manifest. Paul says that he boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. And the phrasing that he uses is more literally that Christ would pitch his tent or, or take up his abode. It is the idea of the presence of God in the life of Paul. That whatever weakness is in his life, it is nothing compared to the indwelling power and protection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in our weakness, we see the power of God. When we are humble, when we are weak, we are able to take a step back and see the amazing power of God at work in our lives. And so in our weakness, we are able to see the incredible power of God. Understanding our weakness allows us to better see and better comprehend the true reality of God's grace and power in our lives. The more clearly we see our weakness, the more clearly we see the power of God. I think this is why humility is so important. 
and why Paul says that this thorn was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. Because in our pride, we don't recognize our weakness. And in doing so, we're unable to, to see the great depths of God's grace and his power in our lives because we're blinded by our own pride. But when our weakness is made known, God's grace and his power is revealed. Do not be afraid of your weakness. Do not run away from your weakness. Recognize your weakness and see the great grace and power of God at work in your life. Let us not hide our weakness from one another, but rather let us expose our weakness to one another so that we may display the amazing grace and power of God in our lives. My wife and I have been married for nine years now. So been a wonderful nine years, for the record. And a couple years into our marriage, we decided we want to start having children. Like now's a good time. We've got a couple years on our belt. Now's a good time. And we thought, no problem. That'll be easy. Once we decide we want to have kids, we can start having kids. It's that simple. It was not that simple. For some it is. For us it wasn't. We had difficulties getting pregnant. And we tried for years. And we tried and we couldn't. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for years. Lord God, please bless us with children. God, you've given us this desire. It's a good desire. Lord, please bless us with children, please. And we would pray and pray. And God finally answered our prayers. I remember the first time seeing those two lines on that test. The joy. We're having a baby. And we were so excited. He said, yes, and the pregnancy was great. And we were excited to soon meet this baby. Fast forward several months into the pregnancy. And I was at work, normal day at work. And I received a phone call, one of the phone calls that you wish you never had to receive. And on the other line was my wife. And I could hardly understand what she was saying what I could make out, she said, Luke, they can't find a heartbeat. Luke, I think our, our child is gone. Please come immediately. And I remember, I remember leaving work and praying like I've never prayed before. And praying and praying, God, please let there be a heartbeat. God, let them find a heartbeat. Please make a heartbeat. Do a miracle, something. God, just please do not take this baby from us. We've been praying and praying, and you said, yes, surely you wouldn't take this baby, please. And I prayed and prayed. And when we got to the doctor's office and they ran the test, God answered my prayers. And God said no. And I remember... I remember looking up at that screen and seeing very clearly my son, Reuben Peter Shalnut, curled up in a ball, lifeless. And as I looked at my wife, broken and devastated, I've never felt so weak in my life. I didn't know what to do. What could I do to bring my son back? Nothing. 
What could I do to comfort my wife? I don't know, I don't have the words. I, I can't even keep myself together. How, how can I be strong for her? I'm so weak. But please trust me when I say that God's glory was displayed on that day. And please trust me when I say I've never experienced God's grace and his power like I did in that time. Why do I share this with you? Because I want you to know that I have experienced this to be true. And it's not something that I ever would have asked for. But I experienced God's gifts in ways in which I never imagined. That I saw his grace in ways in which I never imagined. And I saw his power in ways in which I never imagined. And I know that some of you have experienced great trials and have experienced great weaknesses as well. Know that God's grace is sufficient. And know that God's power is made perfect in your weakness. God is good. Even in the darkest of times, he is worthy of our worship. And he never stops being worthy of worship. And I know the feeling of crying out to God and not hearing the answer that you want. But beloved, know that your prayers never go unheard from God. And sometimes we cry out to God and we cry out to God and we cry out to God. And sometimes God says no. And when God says no, it is because it is what is best. Always. For our heavenly Father always gives to us what is best. And from our standpoint, a no seems like a negative response. But from a divine standpoint, it is perfect. And it is good. And it is right. And in that, we ought to rejoice. I do not think that God delights in the pain of his people, but I'm certain that he uses it for our good and for his glory. Your pain is not outside of his control. Your pain is not in vain. Your pain is part of God's perfect, sovereign will. And maybe part of that plan, part of his will, is that for God to humble you. Maybe part of that plan is for you to see the grace of God. Maybe part of that plan is for, for you to see the power of God. Whatever it is, God is good. God is sovereign. And God is worthy of your worship. Which brings us to our last point and our most brief point. That God's, we see God's glory in our weakness, verse 9 and 10. We see God's glory in our weakness. Paul understands that in his weakness, the power of God is displayed. And this is what Paul wants more than anything, for God to be glorified. He didn't want to boast in himself, but he chose to boast as he found it necessary to do so. But if he was going to boast, it was going to boast in his weakness. Why? Because it shows the power and glory of God. His boasting is not in himself, but his boasting is in God. Paul's mindset is, look, if my weakness better displays the power of God and therefore he is glorified because of it, then that's what I want. Therefore, as he says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Let me show you my weakness so that God 
may be glorified. What was once asked to be removed, he asked three times, remove this. Now Paul can boast in it, knowing that it shows the power of God and therefore glorifies him. God is glorified in your weakness. Can you boast in your weakness? Knowing that God's grace is sufficient and God's power is displayed and therefore God is glorified. This truth ought to affect the way that we live our life. It did for Paul. This conviction has given Paul the freedom now to live boldly for the Lord. Look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. There is no fear in what the consequences might be in living for the Lord. He is content, the word actually means, he delights in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities for the sake of Christ. And he knows firsthand that living sold out for the Lord brings all kinds of weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. He knows that, but he delights in it. But he delights in it because he knows that when he is weak, then he is strong. Why? Because God's power is made perfect and because God is glorified through his weakness. Do you delight in suffering for the sake of Christ? Do you delight in suffering for the sake of Christ? Do you welcome persecution and insults and hardships for the sake of Christ, knowing that it will bring you weakness? Can you delight in it knowing that God's power is displayed and God is glorified? To suffer for the sake of Christ is a blessing. Jesus speaks on this, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Peter speaks on this, 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. To suffer for the sake of Christ is to be blessed. Do you view it in such a way? Do you view it in such a way? Are you emboldened, are you free to live for Christ knowing that in your weakness, whatever weakness it might bring onto your life, God is glorified. Now let me be clear, suffering in, 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 in no way adds a, a, any merit or favor to your relationship with God. All right, please do not misunderstand that, that this living in an ascetic life or, or this, this self-afflicting life somehow secures God's favor with you. Paul is not seeking the suffering. Remember, it was given to him, verse seven says. Nor is he judging his standing with God based on the amount of his suffering. No, but he does find delight in it, knowing that he is suffering for Christ, for him, and that ultimately it brings glory to God. And so in that, he can delight. Let us be emboldened. Let us be emboldened to live for Christ despite the consequences it may bring, knowing that God will be glorified. As we close, we go back to the paradox stated in verse 10. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is a seemingly self-contradictory statement. But then enters God, and he changes everything. We are not left alone in our weakness, but God is with us always. And I think the greatest example of this paradox of power is found in the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the trials and the suffering and the weakness brought onto Jesus in the crucifixion. As the Son of God was mocked and insulted, as he was beaten and bruised, as he was whipped and scourged, as he hung on that tree and he died for our sins, weakness displayed for all to see. But the story does not end there. Through that weakness, we see the power of God displayed as Christ conquered the grave, triumphing over sin and death. He was risen from the dead and he lives today. And beloved, that same power resides in you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is at work in your life and his Holy Spirit dwells in you. His grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. So rest in the power of God. Now if you are here today and you are not a Christian, I gently say to you that your greatest weakness is, is not whatever trial it is that you're going through right now. And by no means do I want to minimize whatever trial or difficulty it is you are experiencing. But I promise you, that is not your greatest weakness. Your greatest weakness is your sin. Your greatest weakness is that you are at enmity with a holy and just God. But God's grace is sufficient. And his grace is greater than your sin. And God's power is stronger. And he has the power over sin and death. And he has the power to save. You need a savior. You do not have the power within you to save yourself. There is no amount of works or amount of knowledge or anything else on your own that you can do to make yourself right before God. You need a savior. And in your weakness, know that God's grace is sufficient. You do not add to the grace of God. It is sufficient. And in your weakness, know that God's power is made perfect. He has the power to save you from your sin. You do not have that power, but he does. Beloved, praise be to God that he has already dealt with our greatest trial. It is finished. It is complete. We have salvation in Jesus Christ. In our greatest weakness, we see his great power. Now, we still have hardships and trials and weaknesses, do we not? Even still, God's grace is sufficient, and he will give us the power to endure through it all. So in our weakness, let us not just see what is in front of us. Let us not be overwhelmed by the trial at hand, but direct your gaze upon the sovereign almighty God who is in control and who is worthy of our worship. And let us together with Paul say, 
when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray.